Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Beard. Once again, we are joined by our co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, things are better this week. I had my moan last week. Um, I was feeling a bit jaded um, with with social work and multidisciplinary working. And whilst situations probably haven't changed, I'm feeling better equipped. I just needed to have a couple of days where I moaned, moped about a bit, um, moaned to everyone that I came across um, that how Three terrible thousands everyone of else was. Yeah, exactly. I shared my pain. Um, Some of my friends who who listen along to the podcast were like, yeah, we get it. We get it. Ah. Um, (laughs) And yeah, things are better this week. Um, What have I been up to? Um, I went to the ballet the other day with my mum. It was my... um, I know. I mean, it's not really my cup of tea, I have to say. Um, It wouldn't be my choice of things to go and watch, but it was a birthday present for her that I got um, last year. So we had a nice afternoon tea and then watched Sleeping Beauty, the ballet, and I had to do my best not to fall asleep, actually, (laughs) in the ballet. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Excellent. really, really hot in the theatre, and I had stuffed my face with um, finger sandwiches, scones and cake. So um, I was ready for a little afternoon nap, but um, I didn't. I, I managed to keep my eyes open just about, um, but it was a little bit, oh, a little bit dull. Not going to lie. Sorry. Pretty I mean, they're so. amazing. Yeah. Yes, she did. Yes. She had a wonderful time and was exclaiming about all of these incredible dances. And yes, they were so incredible. But I mean, um, yeah, it's just... It's just a bit dry. Um, I prefer things where there's words and spoken stuff rather than just music and dance. Words and spoken stuff. What a what a cultured lady you are, Tilly. <laughs> you know me. Yeah. I prefer I prefer words and spoken stuff. Come on. Oh, oh yeah. all the highbrow cultural things you do and the way you describe it is words and words and spoken stuff. I mean, what better description is there, really? You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I do know what you mean. That's a very fair point. I do know what you mean. <laughs> anyway, enough about me. How have you been? Um, yeah, good. I uh, I went to see a, a little known band called the uh, the 1975 last week up in oh, Glasgow. I'm so jealous. They're, oh, they're amazing. All oh, right. Uh, my girlfriend's a millennial. <laughs> You know, I'll put it straight. I'm not really. A, I consider myself to be like, if I am a millennial, I'm definitely sneaking in by the back door. Given I was born in 1983, you know, I'm. I'm a, I, I could just about get away with being a millennial, but I don't feel like one, you know. So my girlfriend is a fully fledged, cult holding member of the Millennium Club, like you, Tilly. She's a fellow millennial, like you. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. She was at mine a couple of months back, and. Uh, no, October actually, it was around Halloween, so it was like maybe four or three months ago. And uh, she said, oh, let's, let's check out the 1975. And I, I thought the 1975 were a band for teenage girls and millennials. And uh, Christmas was coming up, and I thought, oh, well, surprise her. I'll get her a pair of tickets to the 1975, and I'll get us a nice hotel room. So up in, in Glasgow at the Hydro, where we saw them. Um, it was a really nice hotel just across the road. Uh, so I was like, right, we'll stay there. Well, not really a road. It's like a sort of uh, a, 
a plaza, you would describe it, I suppose. So, yeah, we'll do that. We'll get a nice view of the Ovo and the Clyde. Hotel's really nice. We'll go up there. And I was kind of, you know, I'm kind of doing it for her. Oh, my God, Tilly. Oh, my God. Uh, I was blown away. Like I, I, I kind of like the 1975, and I've been listening to a lot of the music and the kind of run-up to it. And I, I was aware of some of the older songs, kind of the first album. But there was a point probably after the after the first song and about a minute into the second song, I just leaned forward and I went quiet. And she looked at me, she's like, you okay, Vince? Is everything all right? Uh, and I was like, yeah, everything's fine. And she thought I was having a bad time. She's like, what's going on? I says, I've got to be honest with you, I'm sat here and this might be one of the best gigs I've been to in my <laughs> life. I was just like, it was like, it was also despite myself. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I do like them. They're okay. And I went there thinking, yeah, they're a, they're a decent enough band. But I was blown away. Like, Matty Healy, what a front man. And the words and the lyrics and the stage show. Oh, my God. And how tight the band was. I, I was literally, it is one of the most memorable gigs that I have ever been to in my entire life. I, I really can't remember. The last time I went to a gig, I, do you know, actually, I can. I, I can, I, yes, I can specifically. The last time I went to a gig that I didn't really go want to go to, and I was taking a girl to that I was blown away like that, was when I saw Taylor Swift. I took a an old friend of mine, a female friend, and a, a nighttime, a nighttime confident is oh, the God. term we sometimes <laughs> No, she wasn't. She was a girlfriend, an old girlfriend called Joanne many years ago. God, back in 2009. Wow. So she like, Look. literally Taylor Swift's first album had come out. And she I was, was going to say, that's, that's oh, right yeah, back yeah. the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it was a love story came out. She had one album. So I, t- I thought, again, I got her some tickets for Christmas and I took uh, Joanne to see... Um, see Taylor Swift and obviously I you know I was really into indie music really into like Kasabian Arcade Fire Kings of Leon you know bands like oh, me, I'm a, bit, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a bloke Arctic Monkeys I was into that kind of music not thinking <laughs> oh I'm not going to be Taylor Swift and I was sat down and, and I remember thinking wow this is unbelievable and obviously Taylor Swift's gone on to be the biggest the biggest pop star in the world um, mm. so yeah I was blown away I, I had a superb time and it it just goes to show that you don't know what you don't know what you're missing out on. If you dismiss stuff because you think it's very popular and therefore it's not for you, or it fits a kind of certain if you if you end up convincing yourself, oh well that's not for me, it's for other kind of people, other demographics, you just don't know what you're missing out on. And honestly, I, I was blown away by how good they were. And and to my girlfriend who regularly listens into this podcast. Thank you ever, ever so much for introducing me to that. I had a wonderful time, mostly with you, but I also had a superb time because of what you introduced me to. Honestly, tell you, it was amazing. I had a, had a rip-roaring time. Not only was the event itself amazing, but as I say, it was a kind of a salient reminder to don't dismiss things just because they're popular. And I do that a lot. I did that with Harry Potter. I refused to read Harry Potter the first time round. I refused to read The Hunger Games. There's lots of stuff that I thought I'm too cool for. But do you know what? I'm doing myself out of a lot of fun. Oh, wise words. They are wise words mm, to live by. A, a good lesson. Um, right. Let's let's hopefully offer some more wise words to our listeners. Should we uh, crack on with this week's show, my friend? Yeah, another good 
fun one this week. Well, yeah. maybe not fun, but more lighthearted. No murder or death. So that's no, good. No, 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 <laughs> unless unless one of the ways to improve social work retention is to murder people. That would that would obviously no, be the no, antithesis. No, no, no. That'd be the opposite of it. Right, let's crack on. So listeners, in this week's show, we're gonna look at 10 ways to improve social work retention. This comes off the back of a story we ran last Tuesday. Um, which essentially we were offered ways to improve social work retention by offering social workers the benefits we deserve. I'm not going to go for the article in detail, but I am going to thank its author, Millie Glass, for her inspiration. So, Tilly, let's just crack straight on, my friend. Um, why do you think, well, actually, what are current retention rates like in adult services? And after you've told us those, if you know them, why do you think those rates are so poor in your area of our noble profession? Well, I don't have any stats. Um, maybe make them up. No one reads. Just make them up. No, I'm not making up stats, but it's poor. It is poor. Um, we lose, we hemorrhage staff in adult services. I don't think it's as bad as children's services. I think that child protection burnout rate is probably worse than adults but we still have a huge vacancy rate in adults we have a recruitment crisis we have a retention crisis i think we just do in social work across the board um we have more vacancies than we can fill with social workers and the problem is the more vacancies we have the harder it is to share out the workload evenly and then that's what drives more people to leave and, and suffer burnout. So it's that vicious cycle, really. We, I don't, it's very hard to break that. Um, but we will try and give some ideas today for those powers that be to um, hopefully listen to Vince and I and our wise words that we have um, and, and maybe offer some suggestions. In children's services, the current vacancy rate is 20%. It's sky high. Um, I know the vacancy rate in adults is about 12%, Tilly, because our good friend and our mutual podcast host, Matt B, shared that with me um, about a month or so ago. So in your line of work, it's about 12%. Now, in children's, it's 20%. That means one in five, one in five of all jobs is currently unfilled, um, you know, vacant. We simply don't have the positions. So the funding's there, they're also there. We just don't have the social workers to cover them. In terms of why retention rates are so poor in my line of work and children's, I would agree with you. I would say it was very, very similar to what you're saying. We have social workers that are simply prioritizing their own well-being over the well-being of the workforce. People are leaving for calmer work, more regular hours, work that suits them. It's very rare, very rare indeed. In fact, I can't think of any personal examples where, aside from a social worker set up their own business in, in a field related to social work, I can't think of a single occasion where I've known a social worker leave our profession and go into a different field for more money. It's always been significantly less. If you can you give me any examples, Tilly, or have you seen a similar thing? You know, social workers act actively taken lower paid work, sometimes significantly lower paid work, at the expense of a better quality of life. That tends to be the pattern from people I've known. Is it similar to you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, the voluntary sector and is often seen as a an escape, but mm. actually, I, I it's not. It's just as busy and it's just as pressured as we know. We 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 hear from people like Matt B, who 
also finds the pressures. I mean, he's he's got a better work-life balance than he would have if he worked mm. in statutory services, but it's still busy. It's still tough. We're still working with people who are living in a system that is so under-resourced and pressured that um, it's always going to be tough. I mean, I've known people to make sort of more lateral moves. Um, mm. Sometimes people go into commissioning or quality improvement or our regulatory services but equally I think they can be just as pressured as well so um yeah unless you're gonna leave health and social care altogether then I don't think that there's there's certainly no easy type job that's well enough paid in our but there is easier job care. I think you know pe- people do choose positions they do be easier or sometimes people leave health and social care entirely so I think that's one of the drivers other reasons for retention rates being poor are people feeling that they aren't able to make the difference they would want to, people feeling restricted by the often bureaucratic and process-driven nature of social work. And I mean, there's a, there's a big drop-off. The big drop-off in social work usually occurs somewhere between two to five years into the profession. If people yeah. can make it past about five years, they generally tend to be in it for not necessarily life, but for decades, for a long period at least. I think in that period, it's when people come out of the more protected bubble of being in in their ASYE year. So that's the first year of social work practice when they're kind of halfway between qualification and, you know, fully-fledged social work. And they've got the the full qualification that sets them up kind of like an apprentice here would be the best way to describe it for our international listeners. And then there's kind of a gap in terms of, well, where do we go from here? And if people don't really want to go into management and people don't really want to progress or perhaps, you know, become a guardian or become an independent reviewing officer, it, it can kind of be a bit difficult in terms of finding your footing. And I think we can lose a lot of people between two to five years in the, into the profession because they don't have progression routes. But yes, it is. Look, it's bad in adults, but it's almost twice as bad in children. So Telly. We used to do this a lot on the podcast. We have not done it for a while, but we are going to do it now. Tilly, I want your solutions. So um, let's go for five ways each. You know, We need 10 ways in total, but let's do five at a time. So can you give me five ways that you think can improve social work retention? So different schemes, different programs, different benefits, which is obviously where the idea for this uh, podcast came from, as our fellow economist Millie wrote an article about the benefits for social worker. So what can we do for social workers to help retain them in this profession? Give me your first one, then give me another four, please, my friend. Okay. Um, So my first one is invest in management training. Social workers, uh, when they progress into management positions, don't get any management training whatsoever. Um, occasionally, you'll you'll get sort of supervision workshops, or um, oh, your HR department might put on a one-off little webinar or something around how to do an interview or recruitment or something like that. But there is no training on how to be a manager, and I think that. If you have teams where there are good managers in place that are supporting their staff, it makes things so much better. You might not fill your teams, but actually, from my experience, you can you can poach good staff. If you're a good manager and people like working for you and you have a good reputation, 
you will get social workers who gravitate towards you and will apply for those positions. Um, but, and I, I mean, there are people that are, are naturally gifted managers, but equally, I think one of the easiest ways or one of the, the quickest ways, sort of a, a sticking plaster would be to give all social work managers a, a crash course in management, critical supervision, um, how to support your colleagues' well-being, how to manage risk, all of those crucial skills that managers need to have where you don't get any support other than guidance from your own manager and your own personal experience. So that's my first one. It is strange, isn't it? It really is strange that we um, we often expect people to manage as social workers and without any experience whatsoever. Certainly experience within... The, the line of profession in terms of social work, but it's very, very different because good social workers don't always make good managers. Is that fair to say? Yeah. <laughs> I've known some brilliant social workers who step up into management and fail almost instantly because they just can't cope with it. And equally, I've known some social workers who weren't necessarily the best frontline practitioners yeah. who make wonderful managers. There are different skill sets. They cross over, but they are different. Yeah, it's very different indeed, isn't it? It's very, very different. Um, right. We're accepting that management training in your goal. What's your second plan, Tilly? Okay. My second one is pay scales that reflect expertise. So I think... Right. One of the issues that we have, um, and we've talked about this on the podcast before and in articles, but you can reach, the when you reach the top of your grade or your level, there's very little places where you can go. If you don't want to go into management, you reach a stalemate where your salary just plateaus out um, and often doesn't even meet the, the rise of inflation or, or the cost of living. Um, mm. We need to be paying social workers who have those specialist skills and expertise we need to be paying them decent wages to guide the workforce but not necessarily step into that management position and I think things like honorariums are really good ideas um, so for those of you who, who aren't really sure what that is they're they're almost like one-off bonuses um where if someone's done a particularly good piece of work or a specific project and have gone and above and beyond you can get a, a one-off payment to recognize Does that not breed that. competition and resentment amongst the workforce i think well it might do but also isn't that a good thing that we have some sort of competition actually social workers yes, but that, do you uh, do you believe that everyone is capable of producing exactly the same work or do you believe that everybody's good enough is slightly different oh everyone's good enough is different so who, um, who's the arbiter who deems where someone is worthy of an honorarium and someone else isn't do you take into I, account that you may have some people who have got you know elderly families to care for do you take into account you've got some people that are, are mothers and fathers and have responsibilities that others can't because you know before i had children tilly i could work 12 hour days now that i've got two children i can't do that anymore if i'm being judged poorly against somebody that can commit an extra four hours a day of unpaid work because i've got to be there at the nursery gates at four four five p.m to pick my children up it just seems to be slightly distasteful to introduce that to me 
I may be wrong, though. Tell me why it's a good idea. <laughs> well, I think it's important to say that these payments aren't for doing more work, that you don't want to be putting in more hours. Mm -hmm. It's about rewarding specialisms and expertise. So, for example, in my local authority, um, honorariums are given to practice educators who will take on students as a, as a one-off bonus, as a thank you for having a student on placement, here's some extra money. So it's it's right, not... It was about £800 a student when I was last working in a local authority that I was aware of their figures. I don't know what it yeah. is for you, you may not be able to share, but that was the last figure I was given. So for our American listeners, that's probably about $1,100, $1,200. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's not necessarily um, about the amount of cases that you have or the amount of complex work that you do. It's mm. just recognising different skill sets and you might have a social worker that's got special interest in a particular area of practice and they go on and they want to kind of hone their skills in a special assessment technique or, or intervention and actually you would be rewarding those social workers supporting them to do it and learn and develop their skills and then rewarding them for sharing that knowledge so not as a well, this social worker is going above and beyond because they're working 12-hour days. That's not what it should be for at all. And I absolutely get that that would breed resentment. But more of a, actually, you're a, a, an experienced social worker at the top of your, your grade or your, your salary scale. And But we recognise that you're still bringing loads of new things to the profession. And actually, we can reward that um, even if... Cause I, the easiest solution almost is to say, well, more pay. But I think that's a bit of a cop-out answer because I don't think that that's ever going to really happen. Um, right. And... I'm not sure I'm a fan of this one, Tilly. So it's it's going, it's going to be no. deferred. It's going to be deferred. I just, I, I, I just don't like the idea of, I don't, I don't like the idea of payments that are kind of, I, I, look, I get if it's for a specific thing, which you know already. If it's a specific thing, like if you take on a, a student, I think that's standard. But I, I, I've seen a culture in my going. I've been in social care seventeen years now. I've seen a culture of my seventeen years in social care where women who are mothers often get overlooked at the expense of men regardless of whether they're fathers or not, and women who haven't got children. I made that may just be my own personal lens that I viewed my profession with, and people may disagree with me potentially potentially quite vociferously on that one. If I've got it wrong, listeners, then I have got it wrong, but I have certainly got it right from my lived experience, Tilly, and I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. I've seen that people who have care and responsibilities might just not be for children. But I've seen again, particularly targeted women, women who've got care and responsibilities for elderly adults or children, I have seen passed over time and time again, and their skills and expertise have not been duly rewarded because they simply haven't had the same time and freedom to commit to the profession, whether that be extra hours work, extra hours working, whether that be extra training, whether that be prepping for management. Look, life's a balance. Life's a balance because certainly. I'll speak bluntly, you know, I find a lot more love and I find it far more rewarding to be a parent to my two children than I do to advance with my career. But again, that's just my own personal lived experience. But I would just, I would worry though, if we had a system that was potentially based upon 
rewards and awards for certain going above and beyond that those who don't have the capacity to that won't be able to. But equally, people may turn around and say, well, Vince, that's the, that's the meritocracy of life. As human beings, we are rewarded for the harder work we put in. So that's just my experience, too. That's just my view. Right. Let's hear your third. What is your third way to improve social work retention? Uh, my third way is invest in decent IT systems. Um, ah, I think- amen. <laughs> amen, sister. This is, you didn't have any more. This is definitely going forward. But no, tell me, tell me more. Light my life up. Yeah, I mean, we all know every single social worker out there knows the burden that a, that a um, failing IT system and uh, can cause you, the amount of extra work that it puts in, the systems don't work properly, they're clunky, they're hard to use. They just could honestly, if people just invested in decent systems, it would save social workers a lot of time and stress. So I think that's one way to reduce the pressure on the workforce. We're in, we're in, sold, sold. Um, (laughs) Your fourth way, my friend, what's your fourth way to improve social work retention? Um, So a little bit similar like the last one, but minimise micromanagement. Um, Allow team managers or heads of service or directors or however it is in the scheme of delegation, delegate some of those responsibilities down towards the front line. Mm. I think in... When local authorities or any services are facing budget pressures, there's that scheme of delegation gets higher and higher. So you mm-hmm. have to get go higher up the chain to get approval. And actually, it just doesn't work. Just let managers or trust your managers, your, your, your team managers, your assistant team managers, those frontline workers to actually put in services um, and do their jobs. Um, and you save time having to jump through millions of hoops just to get one care package agreed. So I think that would reduce a lot of stress on the workforce. I like it. So it's almost um, allowing people a bit more freedom in terms of working and managing their own diaries. But with that, do you not have to ensure you've got workers that are capable of doing that? Because you have to get a balance because some micromanaging is necessary and some social workers need micromanaging, you know, I spent six months as a manager, Tilly, and obviously you spent a lot longer than I have as a manager, but you and I, I'm sure, both know that some workers need to be kept on a short leash. They need to be watched all the time. Others, you can basically say to them, I don't care what your diary is as long as the work gets done and you know they will do it. Yeah, I think there is a balance, but I think allowing your first line of management so those team managers assistant team managers they should be able to make a lot of the day-to-day decisions and funding Mm -hmm. decisions as well um i'm not saying that that all social workers should have a blank checkbook and be able to go out because i think we would be bankrupt pretty quickly there has to be checks and balances Mm. (laughs) because we'd be like yeah let's advocate for everyone let's give people the services that they need and our local authorities would collapse um so yeah there, there does have to be some balance there but there's no reason why as soon as you step up into a management level you shouldn't have sufficient um powers to be able to agree care packages and and agree care plans and things like that i think um i like it higher up to just get a petty sum agreed and tell you if we treat people how we believe they can be if we give people the support and trust um do people live up to our expectations if we give them trust yes 
Most exactly people that's do. What I mean, of course they do. Yeah. If you treat people like adults, they'll react as such. If you treat people like children, they will come to you every single time that they think they need some advice or guidance for fear of getting in trouble. That bogs their time down, it bogs the manager's time down, it takes both the manager and the social worker away from the work that matters. Excellent. Right. Let's hear your fifth and final one, my friend. Right. My fifth one is mentor schemes beyond the ASYE. Um, so Tell me about this. I... I'm, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> so obviously you get your practice educator, practice supervisor um, for your first year as a newly qualified social worker. Or you should do. If you're not, then there's a problem. You deserve one. Um, but then after the ASYE, there's a drop off point and yeah. you don't get that sort of that mentoring and that career development and that CPD support. I mean, you, some people do from their line managers, um, but it's not separate from the line management. So any of that supervision that you get often goes into sort of case management. It doesn't go to that critical reflection. That, that no, it's about, it's about the cases. It's about managing the exactly. cases rather than managing and developing the person. Exactly. So I think it would be really helpful if we could have some sort of mentor schemes where you could continue on that ASYE journey, um, not necessarily with the portfolio, because let's not create work for people, but still have that support that, that you can go to. You can have some time in your diary to have that quality reflective supervision away from your line manager. This is not what chief social workers should have been doing. Principal social workers. Well, the problem is with that is you've got one principal social worker per organisation, and so who would fulfil the mentorship role then? Who would that? Would that be an experienced manager? Would it be a social worker? And where do they get the time from? I think it could be with peers. I think you could pair people up. Um, social worker in their second year go with a social worker in their fourth year, or not quite as arbitrary as that because people progress at different rates, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's there's space if everyone has to be mentored and everyone needs to a mentoree. That kind of equals its so way. So essential listeners, what Tilly's advocating here is for a prefect system in social work. She wants the year sixes and sevens to look after the year twos and threes. And <laughs> hey, can, can, it works at schools, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, let's way. not go a step further, Tilly. Why, why don't we just uh, why don't we just sort social workers into I don't know maybe four different areas, four different I don't know we could call them houses upon the upon their point of entry of the profession. How would that sound? <laughs> as long as we don't have Dumbledore as the the head of social work, I think we're good. Yeah, good, right? Yeah, I, I, no, I like that idea. I think it's good, and I think that. But mentors and mentees are incredibly important in life. They are, it is incredibly important to have role models. And in social work, we have a lot of role models, you know. We have role models that we maybe read about, or we have role models that, you know, we potentially had when we were students and we potentially had in university. But, yeah, as the silo nature and the stressful nature of our work can can take us away from that at times. We may not have specific people. We might just pick up little bits of press practice from here and there. So I do like that idea. And I think formalizing that idea is it's not a bad thing at all. And if you've got that tie to a, a mentor and you're someone's mentee or vice versa, that's an extra tangible connection to your work, which hopefully will help keep you there and may make the bad times not so bad. 
Brilliant. Right, four out of five. That's not too bad. So yeah, even even the, even the one that I dismissed, <laughs> I just think you know, I just it just like I say, as I was explaining, it's just my personal opinion on that one, and uh, I am often wrong, Tilly. I am often wrong indeed. Right, here's my five. Um, number one. I think we should allow social workers to work flexibly outside of office hours. Um, we were talking about commitments earlier and, you know, people have children and other commitments. And if if people are able to better balance their commitments throughout the day, you know, by blocking out two hours during a work day, but being still contactable by management in an emergency, but agree to make those two hours up later, that could be, say, between 9pm to 11pm, you know, let it be. I think we should work with people, not forcing them to work against themselves. And I think that's that's very important, you know, to consider that, you know, a lot of the time people are working against themselves. If I, you know, if I need to, you know, collect my kids between four to five and I have a manager who's, oh, well, you can only work nine to five. You've got to work your core hours. We hear core hours all the time. But my kids might be in bed at seven. I might have three hours on a night. I think, well, I could really do that work there. But what happens now, Tilly? What happens now is when we have that out of hours work and we end up working for free because it's not it's not on the clock. And we're entering a, a way of life in a society these days that is far more flexible. You know, we're entering the gig economy. A lot of people criticize the gig economy because it it robs us of, of a lot of our kind of employee rights and, and things like that. And that's true. You know, zero hours contract aren't a good thing. But if we can take the best elements of that gig economy, which is saying, well, I'm available for work, let's do it now, you know, let's get this right. I could set myself up as an Uber driver if I wanted, and every night I could have an hour, right? I'm going to go and earn a bit of money. I, I think that isn't so bad if it's done on your terms and done in a way that suits you. So I do think as in social work, like we have some managers that do this and we have some organisations that do this, but we don't allow that flexible work and en masse and as long as you're going to say, right, in a case of emergency, I am contactable, we should be allowed to work in the best way that suits us if we're at a point where we don't need micromanaged anymore, if we're at a point where it can be trustworthy. So I think that would really, really increase retention rates because you'd be able to work in a way that suits you and not just an arbitrary way that's deemed to suit the service's needs. And we hear that all the time, don't we? Must suit the service's needs. But that's just a, that's just a vague notion that people fire up. So obviously visits are a bit different. Visits out of hours are a bit different. But let's say if I knew that I had five visits to do tomorrow, what's stopping me logging on at 2 p.m.? and working at 10 p.m., starting off the day with those five visits, coming back home and working on paperwork. As long as I'm going to say, well, look, my phone's there for an emergency, but if people are ringing me just because they want an update or just because they want a chat, well, send it through admin and send an email. I'll answer it later. I just think we should give, if we, we, we said to our employees, right, you've got to give us 40 hours over, you've got to give us 40 hours over the next seven days. Every seven-day period, you've got to give us 40 hours. You pick those hours as and when it chooses you. Uh, and if you had someone that could cover your calls, I just think offering something like that would really provide people a lot more flexibility, would help with retention, it would help people feel valued, and they would no longer have to fight and choose between their personal life and their work life. They would be able to work out what suits them best. Yeah. I like that. I think there's a lot more organisations that are doing it now. I think it's yes. becoming more common. Um, but yeah, like roll it out. Sold. Excellent. We're in. Number two, I've spoke about this many times before, 
and I'll speak about it one more time tonight and many more times again in the future. Um, <laughs> we need to provide access to independent counselling or therapy. The key thing here is it's not through HR. Now, this is common in some fostering agencies and it works really well. And I think we should be doing it en masse throughout social work services too. Now, a lot of the time you can do this, but it's through HR. Now, I might not necessarily want HR to know that I'm struggling because let's get this right, Tilly. Who are HR really there for? Are HR there for the employee or are they there for the organisation? The organisation, of course. Of course they are. are. Of course they are. Now, this is not, not to criticise. I've got some good friends of mine working HR. It is difficult to go to your own HR department to admit you're struggling. It's difficult to go to your own manager and admit that. But I think if we had an offer where we could access independent, confidential counselling uh, through our organisation that was totally independent of HR and independent of the organisation, that is proper therapeutic support, not just a quick chat with your manager saying, are you okay? Oh, I'm not. Well, okay, go and see your GP or go and speak to HR. I think that would really, really improve retention rates because, Tilly, what's an important reason why people end up leaving social work? Burnout. Burnout. Burnout driven by mental health issues, stress and anxiety. So that's my second solution. Yeah, I like that one too. That one's in as well. Oh, brilliant. Two for two. <laughs> right, the next one is coming out. I've spoken a bit about being a parent tonight, and that's just, you know, because I think that is a stress that I certainly felt myself um, for the past eight years. You know, my, my eldest child eight, my daughter's eight now, so that's certainly something I felt. And obviously in, in the build-up, uh, you know, when, when she was coming, I felt it too, knowing that she would be with us soon. And I was thinking, what would have made my life easier once my daughter was born? And I was thinking specifically in the context of return to work in an emotionally charged environment as a new parent. That's very, very difficult indeed. Now, I already had two weeks out when my daughter was born. I had two weeks paternity leave, same again for my son. But if I was returned to work after a year, which is a lot of my female friends have had a year round, and I'm coming back with that maternal bond with a child, having spent a year with them and going back to work, it is very, very difficult to return to work in an emotionally charged environment as a new parent. So I think there should be far more done for parents and particularly in that return to work because there are so many women I know, till you may have seen exactly the same, who changed their stance on work entirely after becoming mothers. Is that something you've seen in your work experience too? Yeah, yeah, many times. Yeah. So I'm not sure what exactly. I'm not going to be here and mansplain to you and all of our female listeners about what should be done specifically. But I do think that there needs to be a far better offer given, whether that's free nursery provision, whether that is guaranteed flexible work. And I know there's a law that we can request that now. Or just simply more done, more done for new mothers or, or women who are having the, the second or third children. I just think there needs to be far more done than that. There needs to be a bespoke package offered to help keep new mums in our profession. Yeah, I think that would that would go a long way to help. Um, yeah, I think that's good. Brilliant. Right. Ooh, three for three. My fourth. Now, you've mentioned this a little bit, and, and it's kind of similar to you, but I think that we need to provide bespoke training on matters that 
are very, very relevant to social work. So for me, that might be things like ABE training, which is Achieving Best Evidence Training, working with trauma, things like that that allow us to feel as though we have you know, something more substantial than experience to back up our judgments. Because a lot of the time in social work, you we talk about evidence base, but sometimes I read a lot of assessments being an independent social worker. I'm, I'm grateful to read assessments from all over the country. And I pride myself on doing evidence-based persons out of assessments. And I'm very lucky in that I've paid for a lot of training. A lot of my training has been quite expensive. And I've, I've done lots and lots of training over oh, many years now. But sometimes social workers are writing assessments. and They don't really have the evidence base to back it up. It's more, well, mum said this, dad said this, the child said this, and I think this. You might, everyone listening might be, well, that's just what an assessment is, Vincent. Kind of, yeah, I get it. I get it. That kind of what an assessment is, really. But... I sometimes worry that we do lack a significant evidence base and a theory base to our social work practice. And when I say we need more training, I mean accredited training, proper training, Tilly. Not just a one-hour workshop in the conference room on Zoom. Not just to say we've ticked a box and done training, but actual accredited substantial training that follows a career pathway in a specific, it's bespoke, and it actually adds tangible skills to your career. I think that if we have specific specialisms, social workers will be far more likely to feel value based upon the allocation of cases that fit our experience and interests. So say, for example, if I had gone down a career pathway that was specifically working with trauma, then I could do a lot of trauma-informed training. Essentially, what we're looking at is specialised social workers and then having them backed up with accredited training paths that makes them very bespoke and very unique. And you end up having a caseload that really, really reflects your specialism and doesn't just reflect your generic experience and resilience and time served. Yeah, I I agree with that one as well. I think since I specialised in in mental capacity practice, I have felt far more settled in my social work practice because it's what I enjoy doing and it's what I'm good at um and actually if we allow social workers to pick their specialisms and train them and become highly skilled then you're giving people credibility you're giving people a reason to stay so yeah I think that's a really good one as well wow wow five for five let's try and get the four for four let's try and get five for five so the last one is quite similar really it's quite similar um But I think what we need to do is we need to have more progression routes that don't involve a change in specialism or don't involve an ascent into management. So right now, if we want to progress in social work, the majority of people have got to go up the management ladder or into slightly different positions, lateral positions. So I got to a point, you know, I've been a social worker 11 years now, and I got to a point where, um, oh, well, I just... You know, my view, Tilly, I, I, I was a manager for a little bit, but I didn't really want to be a manager. It was kind of doing a favour and helping out, and I enjoyed it, and it was good, and the feedback I got was excellent. And, I, you know, I was very, very grateful to have a good team, and we got very good feedback in terms of our performance data and everything. It was a happy team. Sickness rates were, were vanished. You know, we did very, very well. I, I enjoyed it, but it just wasn't for me. I didn't want to... I didn't want to. I didn't want to be halfway up a ladder. I didn't want to climb. I'd rather be at the bottom of a ladder I wanted to climb than halfway up one that I didn't. So it wasn't for me. But if I wanted to earn more money and if I wanted to get more job security and if I wanted to be deemed to progress, that was the only thing that was really available to me. 
Uh, so that's why I checked out entirely and became an independent social worker because I, I, I went to the bottom of a ladder I wanted to climb rather than being halfway up one that I didn't. And I just think that if we had specialisms where we could become an expert in a certain field that might be practitioners specialising in CSE, intrafamilial sexual abuse, non-accidental injury, drug and alcohol, pre-birth, whatever area it is. And it kind of links into what I was saying about the training earlier. So I think as well as offering social workers specific training, I think we need progression routes that do not involve a change in specialism, and i.e. from children to adults or so on, or an ascent into management. I just think that we can do that and we would end up meaning we'd end up with basically social workers being more likely to feel more valued because what would happen is they would get allocations based upon their specialisms and interest and expertise. And like I say, not just those generic allocations based upon time served. I like it, but I find it really hard to see how it could start because how do you what do you do when your specialist then leaves and you're left with a void of knowledge potentially um and if you've got a lot of social workers specializing you've got no one to do the generic stuff either um the social workers I, I would like start it. off generic wouldn't they social workers would start yeah, off generic they would they would and look look people are going to leave regardless people are going to leave regardless so what do we do do we not aim high? Because people, it's, it's like saying, you know, I really love my girlfriend. I really love my boyfriend, but I'm not going to try hard for them in case they leave. <laughs> Do you, no, I mean, that may have seemed like a silly example. But, you know, that does happen. How many people are you aware of, Tilly, in relationships who are so scared of invested fully in that relationship because they're scared of being hurt? So what are you yeah, gonna you're gonna course. you're gonna apply that same to your well I don't I don't I don't really want to put my all into that work I and mean, I don't really want to train them. But look, if they leave. Credit to them. Credit to them. This is what I always used to say to my manager, my, my, my social workers that I was managing. If you're going to leave for a position that suits you better, that I can't match here, then what am I going to do to stop you? Am I going to threaten to stop you? I'm going to offer you promises that I can't meet. I just I just don't think if you look, if you love someone, set them free. Yeah. I, I mean I can't argue with that part at all. Um, but I you just, would be scared. You'd be scared of if in case I would you be scared. Left. Well, uh, on a macro level, not on, on on an individual level, because actually, like you say, you, you need to let you your can. social workers go um, when they're ready to move on. Um, I don't want to be stopping anyone from doing that. But when you're looking at managing a service level caseload, and suddenly you've got no one that knows how to deal with a I don't know, certain specific assessment tool that you've decided that that, that you're going to use or something, then you pretend, you have that risk of then having a void which you can't quite fill. Yeah, it's like um, football. It's like when Newcastle United saw Andy Cole and then we signed Les Ferdinand and Alan Shearer a few years later. It's like just like a football team, mate. No, we'll just go again. You've got to do it. But uh, look, you, you, do, you do make a very valid point. But equally, look, I would say that the specialism isn't a prerequisite because, of course, it isn't. You know, the, the cases I was talking about there, I've been allocated cases with all sorts of things. I was, I was allocated cases like that before I'd even finished my ASYE year. That's what happens right now. So... 
we're not going to be any worse position than we are right now, but we're going to be in a lot better position because currently we get specialised cases. We've got to give them to generic workers anyway. Now, if we trained our workers to be more specialists, to say like fifty percent of your case would maybe specialist, fifty percent was more generic. I just believe that that would give our clients a hell of a lot better service. That would give our clients a much better service. It would very likely reduce re-referral routes. It would get work done quicker and. It's going to give our social workers a lot more job satisfaction because they are valued for what they know, what they can do, what their expertise are, rather than just being a generic bum on a seat. I like it. Okay. There we go. Now, you round. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, excellent. So we've got nine and a half options there. And the only reason we've already got half of one is because I don't like it, but I'm sure our listeners will love it too. I'm sure it's a very good idea. Our listeners will be like, yes. Give us that bonus right now. Not a bonus. Definitely not a not bonus. A bonus. I we think call it a you bonus. misunderstand. But We're not going to have a league table. <laughs> We're not going to have a league table on the wall, like the highest performance social worker gets a oh, 500 pound no. bonus. No, 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 no. You'd no, love no, that, Tilly. No. You'd love Definitely you'd have it like not. the X Factor. And coming in this week, we've got Linda. Linda <laughs> is coming in. She has closed 14 cases. Well done, Linda. There's your, uh, there's your carriage clock for the mantelpiece. <laughs> no, it's more like what you were saying about social workers specialising. It, it's rewarding. That makes sense. Things like that. It's not certainly not. Well, you've done this number of assessments this week, or you've got no outstanding visits. Have a bonus. Yes, that's like, what I was thinking. That, it was no, 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 no. It's about rewarding those social workers that are top of their grades, and you, we can't necessarily increase the grades because. We, we have an issue with local authority budgets and they that's not going to go away. We've got local authorities all up and down the country on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, so giving a, a whole load of the workforce more money, although that's what I would want to do, isn't going to happen. We've not got any support politically to do that. But giving those social workers an incentive to do like specialisms or say, right, okay, you're going to do some... Um, you're going to do a, a course on child sexual exploitation or something, and then you're going to pioneer that. You're going to be the champion of of the, working with with people at risk of child sexual exploitation, for example. Then you would be rewarding them with an honorarium payment for that. Well, in that case, Telly, we've got ten out of ten. Oh, yes. I won you down. at the back post. Bosh. <laughs> Right, listeners, um, I hope you've enjoyed this one. Some very, very positive ideas. Let us know what you think. And uh, yes, or oh, Tilly, our next podcast will be recorded live and you'll uh, be able to catch us on video, listeners, because this weekend we are having our regular writer's catch-up. So uh, yeah, this time next week, you'll be listening to a podcast. You'll be able to watch it on YouTube. As always, do check out the articles we've discussed over at mysocialworknews.com. You'll also see regular articles from myself and Tilly on there, and as well as all our other columnists and regular writers. Uh, do consider leaving a review over iTunes. If you can leave a review, we will read it out on next week's show. We'll be back next Friday. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.